Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends of Christ, today marks our first Sunday in the Epiphany season. Um, and uh, the, the decorations, um, kind of, uh, not, notwithstanding, um, uh, Christmas season is, is, now, is now over. Right, we had our 12 days of Christmas finishing on, I guess it would have been Friday. And then we had uh, Epiphany itself was yesterday, that day in the church here when you celebrate the wise men and uh, following the star and finding and worshiping the baby Jesus with those um, with those gifts. And then today, we're celebrating the baptism of Jesus. And this is all part of this Epiphany season, in which Epiphany itself, it's a revelation, a disclosure, kind of a manifestation, something new. I always think of Epiphanies with comic strips. Um, so when I was a kid, um, I really enjoyed the funnies. My father and I would always fight for who, who could get the, the funny pages first uh, to read those um, those comics. And to this day, Calvin and Hobbes remains my favorite one of, of, these, um, of these comics. I'm actually reading right now the, the very last collection to my daughter, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, if you've ever read the funnies, then you've seen the trope of like the light bulb, right? Where like the, the character gets this like new idea, right? And the light bulb goes on over their head. Usually like some problem has come up and they're like in some kind of a pickle and then the light bulb goes on and they figured it out, right? That's that's an epiphany. And in many ways, the epiphany season intends to be this for our understanding of Jesus. It, it intends to like turn the light bulb on over our heads so that we understand who Jesus is as our Savior. Um, it's our comprehension, right, of the truth of who Jesus is. It's been dawning on us throughout the, the Christmas season. We've seen the birth of our God announced by angels and, and by the shepherds. And now this epiphany season, it intends to use the metaphor, intends to turn the rheostat up all the way, right? So that, that light bulb is at full power over our heads, and we really get and confess that this baby born of Mary in Bethlehem, he is this eternal Son of God, our Savior. And he is so from stable, of course, to cross and to empty tomb. We begin to see here this, this height, the breadth, the unimaginable depth of the love of our God in Christ Jesus for you and for me. As we recognize him as the one who also enters into our life, into our weakness, into our sin and our death to be our Savior. So as I said, Epiphany intends to like turn on our light, right, for the under, understanding of Jesus. But at least at first glance, I'm not so sure that it's obvious how our text does that so much. I mean, we have, um, you've got um, the word of God's, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But if we think about the baptism of Jesus kind of more broadly, it's actually a little bit confusing about what it's saying about Jesus. So maybe, I, I think we're so used to it that maybe we don't recognize this, but when you read some early church like leaders, you can actually begin to see their own struggle and confusion with the baptism of Jesus. In my graduate program, when I was uh, doing my, my PhD in theology, I took a class on baptism, and we read some of these early church fathers, and it was really striking just how much they felt like they had to justify why Jesus was baptized. They were just uncomfortable with this event. Guys like, I'm sure um, but Ignatius of, of Antioch, Justin Martyr, you probably don't know any of these names, but, but they themselves like, were quite uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus was baptized. 
And the reason is, is quite simple, actually. Jesus is sinless, yes? But the baptism he receives is a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. This is what the Bible calls it. Actually, not so much in our text, but if you look back into um, like the previous part, this is what John is giving, a baptism of repentance in the text right before ours. I think it's Matthew um, 3, verse 11, if I remember correctly. And in that in itself, I'm sure you already begin to see the challenge of the text. If John's baptism is about turning like the people of God away from their sin and towards himself, um, and towards God, that is, well then, what is Jesus doing in getting baptized? Right? People are coming to John to get baptized because they're confessing themselves as sinners. They're saying they're not who they should be, that they had not been putting God first in their lives, that they had not been loving their neighbors as themselves. But what about Jesus? And this is why John himself is saying, well, hey, hold on. Maybe I shouldn't be baptizing you, right? Like, why am I doing this? And he only consents when he hears what Jesus has to say about it. So why would the sinless one come to John? Why would he confess sin among sinners and request that John baptize him as a sinner despite being sinless? Why would the perfect son of God do such a thing? So that's our question that I want to look at this morning. We're going to look at why is Jesus baptized? Um, now, this might seem like, um, hopefully we're already seeing that this isn't just a, um, an idea. It actually has everything to do with who Jesus is beginning to see him as one um, who loves us so deeply that he actually enters into our midst. So this isn't merely like academic or theological. This is really about the gospel itself. Let's look at this question. Why was Jesus baptized? I'm going to look at two wrong answers first to help us to, to get into sort of what Scripture has to say. So we're going to look at two wrong answers, and then we're going to get into like a scriptural right answer. That's going to be the outline for the message this morning. So in the first two centuries after Christ, there's actually one very clear answer to this question um, from a group called the Ebionites. So that this, this group is, they were called the Ebionites on later church history, um, meaning the, the, the poor ones. But, but this group, whether it ever actually was a cohesive group, is actually a matter for debate. But there was this clear position given. And what they taught, this um, or at least this teaching, was that Jesus' baptism was a particular moment in which um, God chose the man Jesus to be his son. And so before the baptism then, what the Ebionites taught was that Jesus was this good, holy man, moral, um, right, upright. He was great in like all ways. And then in the baptism, God makes Jesus, this man, into his son. So it's almost like you can imagine like God looking down from heaven and seeing the man Jesus going, oh, wow, that guy, he's really good. He's this great guy. I mean, he loves me. He loves other people. Wow, he's really holy. I'm going to make him my boy. And then in his baptism, he makes Jesus his son. Notice the logic, right? Jesus is first a man and only then becomes God's son according to their way of thinking. Um, so before that, he's just a human being, right? But in baptism, then he becomes his son. So this Ebionite answer, right, it gives a clear reason for the baptism that is important for Jesus' own life too, which um, matters, but that doesn't fit with the Bible at all. Think of the book of Colossians, right? So Paul, he, he writes there in chapter 1, he says, all things were created through Jesus 
and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's certainly no mere man, right? All things were created by Jesus. In fact, all things were created for him and through him. You can like imagine Jesus at the beginning of the creation, right? And Jesus, in fact, at the end of the creation, because all things are created for him. And then he's also the very like glue, if you will, that holds it all together from beginning to end. I, that's not me. That's not you. That's way more than just a human being here, right? And then in, in John's gospel, John says at the beginning in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were created through Him, and nothing was created without Him. And then John says, and this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice what Paul and John, the apostles, are saying here to us. They say, no, first was the eternal word, the eternal God. God was, and then God became man. Not that man becomes God, but God became man. And friends, this makes all the difference because if we think of, the, uh, of a man who becomes God, do you know what that means for our salvation? And you and I need to be holy. We need to have our lives all perfect. We need to be upright, have everything down pat. You better live like Jesus, and then you can become a child of God. But without that, well, good luck. That's what the Ebionite way of salvation would be. And if that were the case, you and I would be lost. Um, But friends, that's not the story of Christianity, and that is not our hope, nor is that the, the gospel message, but rather that God becomes man precisely so that you and I have this full salvation, not because of what we do, but by grace and by grace alone. That is the message of salvation, that you are right with God, saved from your weakness, from our death, and have that hope of everlasting life in Jesus, really because of Him, not because of you. So this, this, this matters, friends. So that, that's that one um, problematic answer, and that is not where we want to go, right? But, but there is another two, one that I think is a little more common, perhaps, um, and one that's certainly more true as well, but it doesn't quite get there either. So one, one answer you might hear today is that Jesus was baptized to give us a model of baptism. So the answer states that it wasn't that Jesus needed to be baptized, but rather you and I need baptism. And thus Jesus receives baptism as our example. As our model, he was baptized in order that we too then will be baptized after him. And so we receive the same baptism as Jesus did because he did it for us. That's another way to understand it. Now, this is, of course, a much better answer and response than that Ebionite one. There's much truth in it. Jesus did not need baptism for his own sake, certainly. He was already fully God and fully man. He already possessed everything Um, in himself. He didn't need to be made something new in baptism. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that the baptism of Jesus was only about us. It's actually very striking when you look at Holy Scripture that Scripture never says that we're baptized into Jesus' baptism. In fact, at no point in Scripture is Jesus' baptism connected with our baptism. Rather, think of our epistle that we had this morning. How does Paul do it there? Notice we're baptized not into Christ's baptism, but we're baptized rather into his, into his death, right? We're baptized into his death, into his resurrection. 
That's what we're brought into. So like verse 4 of chapter 6 here from, from uh, Romans, it says, We were buried with Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's our pattern. We're not washed into Christ's baptism, but rather buried in a watery grave into his death and into his resurrection. And that too is because, as we said earlier, Jesus is not primarily our model. He is not primarily our example. He is our Savior. He does call us to follow Him, but we must understand Him first as our Savior and as our Redeemer, as the one who enters into our existence, into our life, in order to bring us into the family of God. He wasn't baptized to give us baptism. Rather, He gave us baptism in the end of Matthew by His authority. Right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is that promise, right? He's saying, hey, I am the Son of God, and you go and give this, this forgiveness to others that I have given to you. Go bring them into this family that I have already brought you in, into, and connect them to me, to my death and resurrection. That is what Jesus is saying to us. He's not baptized to show us what to do. He's baptized, rather, to be our God with us, who comes into our sinful lives even, but to save us. So then why was Jesus baptized? Well, we're, we're starting to get there, but let's dive into a little bit of a better understanding. I think actually Jesus' words in our text are, they, they give us the answer. So Jesus says, um, when John says, well, wait, I shouldn't baptize you, right? Notice the words that Jesus says there. For thus it is fitting for, for us to fulfill all righteousness. I think actually that really is the answer. The trouble is, it's so dense, right? Like, well, what, what does that mean? Jesus really fulfill all righteousness. Tell me more, right? That doesn't really tell us very much. And there's also a, a struggle here too, because our, the way that we naturally think of righteousness um, doesn't fit very well with what we see in Jesus. Our natural way of thinking about righteousness is some kind of like obvious holiness, right? A sort of moral perfection that follows some kind of clear standards. And we expect Jesus' righteous, righteousness then to look like that too. Well, if he stands apart from sinners, well, then that's righteousness, right? If he avoids all perceptions of sinfulness, if he removes himself from sinners, then, okay, that's righteousness. That's the opposite of what Jesus actually does here in baptism and in his life. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness not by avoiding sin, but by bearing it, by taking it on. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness not by removing himself from sinners, but by becoming friends with sinners. That is why Jesus was baptized. Jesus' baptism enters into, and the, the way that he enters into our sinfulness, I think it only makes sense if we first recognize the depth of our sin too. Because without faith in Jesus, well, we know where we stand, just as we confess this morning. Unclean, totally sinful by both what we have done and by what we have undone. We've alienated ourselves from God. On our own, without Jesus and his righteousness, we are simply lost. Most of the time, we, we even think that our lives are largely under control, and if they aren't, well, then at least we could fix them some way or another. In fact, I had a student just this past semester who um, 
came to me at the very end of our class, like in the last week or two, and admitted to me that he had needed help like all semester. Um, but um, he just hadn't come to me. And so when I asked him why, of course, naturally, as a, as a professor, <laughs> why didn't you come to me? Um, he said, well, he thought he could do it on his own and that he just didn't want to ask for help. It was just too embarrassing, too hard. And that, I think, is all of us. It's hard to ask for help. It's hard to say we can't do it, that it's not in my power, and we don't want to. And friends, that's all part of our sinfulness here. Um, It's even more true there. We have this illusion that we can somehow take control of our lives and fix things. The reality is that we're weak. We're under the power of death, and we're unable to stop ourselves from hurting others, from saying those those mean things from putting ourselves first and living as selfish sinners. And without Jesus, we just don't have any righteousness. We're lost in our sin, far from God and hurting others that we want to love. But yet for us who are alone, alienated from all these people, lost in our sins, for us the Son of God came to us. He came to fulfill all righteousness by becoming part of our lives, part of our world. What we see in Christ's baptism is just how serious Jesus is in coming to us, in coming to be with us. He entered into our real existence, not like standing above the fray, standing away from sinners. No, none of that. But he enters into the muck and the mire that you and I actually take part in. He enters fully into our story, into our world of sin and suffering. And so he received a baptism of repentance, not because he needed to repent for his, but because he wanted to repent for yours. In the waters of baptism, Jesus counted himself as a sinner, not because he had sinned, but because he became sin, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5. He became sin for you and for me. Jesus numbered himself with transgressors, with us even though he could have stayed above the hot mess of our sinful lives. He refused that. Instead, he takes on our weakness, our failures, our sins already in his baptism. That's the Lord he is determined to be throughout his ministry and all the way to the cross and the resurrection. Not standing apart from us, but our friends. To see this better... I want to talk about or look at a, a parable that Soren Kierkegaard, a Lutheran philosopher of the, uh, of the 19th century, that he gave. And so I'm going to just follow his lead here and ask you, imagine a powerful king who visits a small rural village on official business. Okay, and on, on his way back to the castle, his eyes fall upon this beautiful, humble maiden, and he is instantly smitten. The man is deeply in love. And if he hadn't been in his royal caravan, he just would have gotten off his horse and proposed right then and there to this young lady. Before going to sleep that night, the the king vowed to make her his, his wife. But in the middle of the night, he was awakened by the most grievous of thoughts here. How could he reveal his love for this humble maiden? How could he bridge the chasm between him and the young lady? And so the king, he called in his most trusted wise advisor here, and he told him about the situation. And the king then began to kind of go through his ideas of what he could do. So his first thought, all right, so what if I march down to the village 
he asked his advisor, in my most glorious armor with the entire royal caravan, and I simply command her to become my wife, my queen. She'd have to obey here. This has got to be the easiest way, he said to his advisor. The advisor thought for a moment. He answered, yes, my king. You could make her your queen simply by your command. You are mightier than all other princes and kings. No one can oppose your power. But, the advisor continued, my king, will she love you? She'll be your queen in name, but will she really be your beloved wife? Uh, nodding, the king responded, yeah, of course, you're right. And they sat in silence for a moment. And the habit, the king yelled out. What, what if I shower her with gifts? What if I dress her in the most lavish of dresses? I throw her the most lavish of parties. I give her all the wealth and power that anyone could possibly want. Then she would gladly become my king. The trusted advisor paused before answering. You could make her your queen by showering her with all of these, this wealth. Absolutely, he said. But, the advisor continued, would she love you, my king? Or would she just love your wealth? Would she love you, or would she just love the things that you have given her? And devastated, the king began to shake his head. Oh, you're right, my wise friend, but what else can I do? I, I can see no other way. My king, the trusted advisor said, there is one other option. You could take off your royal robes. You could take off your signet ring. You could put down your crown and your scepter, and you could leave behind your entire royal caravan. You could put on the rags of a villager and go live in that village and woo her as a fellow peasant. And that is what the king did. He tossed aside his royal raiment. He relinquished his ring and his crown, and he, he set aside his scepter. And he put on rags, and he lived in the peasant, as a peasant in that village to woo the woman that he loved. And friends, this, of course, is exactly what our Jesus does. And this is his righteousness. Not the righteousness of royal robes, not the righteousness of royal pomp or power. Jesus' righteousness is the righteousness of rags, the holiness of humility. Jesus tossed aside his divine power. He relinquished the heavenly throne. He set aside his glory, and he put on our humanity. Not some kind of perfect humanity, but this sinful, weak flesh that you and I have, he chose to make it his own. That's what Jesus was doing in the waters of baptism. He was baptized to be numbered as a sinner with us in order that he could enter into these burdens of our sin. He did not have to do this, but he chose to become sin, to become a curse for us. This is the height, the depth, the unimaginable breath of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And this is his righteousness. It is weird, it is backwards, but it is good. Because the sinless one chooses to become a sinner so that you and me, sinners, could become righteous children of God. That's what Jesus' baptism is all about. In his name, amen.